Welcome to Ivy League Murders. My name is Sarah Alcorn. I'm a Harvard graduate and a private investigator. And my name is Laura Rodriguez McDonald. I'm a University of Miami graduate, longtime crime aficionado, and part of a fourth generation NYPD family. Laura and I don't always agree on everything. With her NYPD roots and my criminal defense background, sometimes we find ourselves on opposite sides of the jury. We do share a mutual passion for crime solving, and we both grew up in Cambridge, steps away from Harvard University. On Ivy League Murders, we discuss cases where the best of the best make the worst decisions. We look at people who seemingly have it all and throw it all away. Why was Bill Cosby released from prison after three years into a 10-year sentence? Most of us were shocked to find out that Bill Cosby had been let out of prison. How did this happen? Cosby, the all-American dad on the eponymous Cosby show, shocked the American public by being accused by multiple women of drugging and raping them. Along with Harvey Weinstein, Bill Cosby epitomizes the Me Too movement. Here today, we are honored to have David Cole. David is a fellow Harvardian, class of 90. He is also one of Dallas's top appellate attorneys, and he has a great podcast called Cole Mine, which puts current events within the context of constitutional law. Welcome, David. So today we're discussing the case of Bill Cosby, and I don't think we're alone in being baffled by his release. Cosby has served three years out of a 10-year sentence. How and why did this happen? To understand how we got to the situation we're in now, we've got to travel back in time and go back a few years, a few more years, all the way back to the very first one of these accusers of Mr. Cosby that came public back in 2005. Uh, her name was uh, Andrea Constant, and she had claims that he, she had been abused and given drugs by, uh, by Mr. Cosby. And the DA in that area was trying to make a decision, do I prosecute or not? And many of these sexual abuse cases, they rise or they fall with the credibility of the attacker. And Ms. Constant just had some problems. It had taken her a long time to report her complaint to the authorities. There were some inconsistencies in the ways she told it. And that's not to say she's not telling the truth. But on the witness stand, when you're facing a good defense lawyer with a beyond a reasonable doubt standard, that was going to be a challenge. There's nobody else that can testify in her place. So it's going to be a he said, she said. And you're going up against Bill Cosby, for goodness sakes. So the DA was struggling with, I think something bad happened here, but I don't think my office is the place where we're going to get justice because I just don't think I can deliver it at the courthouse under the framework we have down there with some of the warts this witness has. So he went back and forth with Mr. Cosby's lawyer and ended up saying, I'm not going to prosecute. My office isn't going to do a thing. Now, the reason that actually why he thought that was advancing the ball for Ms. Constant was in civil litigation. We're not criminal case where she's seeking money damages for her injuries, for her anguish from Mr. Cosby, for what he did to her. That's only a preponderance of the evidence. And the Fifth Amendment, the protection against self-incrimination, does not apply. In the criminal case, 
I said it was he versus she. I was a little bit inaccurate about that because Constant has to testify because the state has to prove its case. But Bill Cosby, he could just sit there. And most criminal defendants do. They don't take the stand because it's a hard thing to do and they don't want to be cross-examined and make a mistake. But when the fear of prosecution goes away, when there's no case or the prospect of one, no Fifth Amendment, you get sued, you have to give a deposition. And he did. He gave several depositions, four, I think. And so far, so good from the DA's perspective. He thinks, I couldn't get a criminal case, but I'm freeing up. I'm clearing the, the a problem out in the civil case where now she's going to be able to go in there, get Mr. Cosby under oath, make him tell his story, punch holes in it, and then go to trial and get a big judgment or a favorable settlement, which in fact is exactly what happened. She settled her claim for over $3 million. But in the depositions, questions like this were asked. Mr. Cosby, have you done this before? Well, yeah. With other women? Well, yeah. With Benadryl? Well, no, actually with Quaaludes. And it didn't get any better. And so that those are legal kind of civil lawsuit 101 type questions. It's understandable. That's something a plaintiff's lawyer would ask. Is, have you done this in other, other people? And to try to understand you know, the full context of the, of the facts of his case. And Mr. Cosby answered more or less truthfully about that. Name names, name dates, and down down the road. As far as Ms. Constance done, uh, case goes, Ms. Constance's case is over and done with. She gets great depositions. The lawyer is able to use that testimony to show to Mr. Cosby's civil lawyers that it's not going to go well for him at the courthouse. Big settlement. Justice is done. Because she probably wasn't get, going to get anything at the criminal courts. She has a nice judgment. She can move on down the road and put this behind her. Then word of the depositions makes its way back to the DA's office. The old DA that did the deal before, he's gone. He's moved on to other things. There's a new DA. And the new DA says, what? <laughs> We've got this sworn testimony of this guy <laughs> using all these women and giving them drugs to do so. And over years and years and years, this is crazy. My office can't not prosecute this. This is serial criminal behavior. And the old DA got wind of this and called her up or wrote her a letter. It's all reprinted in the opinion and said, you can't do that. I made an agreement. I agreed with Mr. Cosby that I wasn't going to prosecute him. And he went and did all these depositions as a result of what I said. So I'm sorry that I made my, that deal, but that's the deal that I made. The new DA looked at the record and said, eh, I don't think you made a deal. I think you talked a lot. And he did. He had a press conference. He talked to the lawyers. And, but I don't see anything in writing. These things are ordinarily you know, reduced to writing. Everybody signs them because you got to be really precise to avoid exactly this kind of problem. But this was not done that way. There was a lot of back oral back and forth. The only writing he could point to was the script of his press conference that the DA gave talking about all this. Rarely is that the document you have for this kind of a, of a deal. And she said, I just don't think you made an agreement. I think you made a decision not to prosecute. But you can always go back on that kind of decision. Prosecutors go back and forth on, on that kind of thing all the time. Mr. Cosby just took his chances and figured that you just weren't ever going to come back. This office was just not ever going to come back against him. But I'm not bound by what you did because you didn't put it in the proper formality. I'm going to prosecute it. So off they go to trial. There's all this, the stuff we know about from the, the TV and all the facts of the cases come out. One of the arguments his defense made was, hey, wait a minute. We had a deal. He said he wasn't going to prosecute us. The trial court heard that the DA, old DA came in and testified, heard from all the lawyers and said, you didn't have a deal. The DA just made a decision not to prosecute in that case. 
You went ahead, you took your chances. Went up to the next level in the Pennsylvania court system and the Pennsylvania Intermediate Court said, same thing. You're supposed to put this kind of thing in writing under our law as just sort of general common sense and contract law. You're supposed to put it in writing. You didn't do it. And what writing there is, isn't an agreement. It's just you talking at a press conference saying you're not going to prosecute. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says, now, wait a minute. And it begins by saying, essentially, this is a one-off case. You're never going to see another case like this. That's why we're the Supreme Court. We take this kind of case. But this is very unusual. This is not something you see every day. But just because it's unusual doesn't mean you can't worry about justice. And the DA here, the court's below us, the trial court and the intermediate court, they got it basically right on what he did. He didn't make a formal agreement to never use the DA's office to prosecute Mr. Cosby. There are certain formalities you have to have. He didn't follow those. The documents are confusing. He he didn't do that. So we're with you on that in the courts below. However, that's not the end of it. And they they have a section where they talk about it's something that we can get a little cynical about in just sort of day-to-day practice. But there are a lot of cases that remind prosecutors, you're not just a lawyer that's got a client and you're out there trying to win the case for the client. You do. Your client is the state of Pennsylvania and you're trying to do justice by them. But what you're really trying to do is protect the people of Pennsylvania. Your client isn't just whoever's at interest in the particular case you're prosecuting. Your client is the county you're representing, the state of Pennsylvania, the people of Pennsylvania. And that's what we expect of you as prosecutors is to act like that, not just be focused on your case. And we agree this wasn't a formal deal not to prosecute Mr. Cosby forever and ever. But my goodness, you said a lot of stuff. You had a press conference, for goodness sake. And you said all these things. And you talked to this lawyer over and over and over again and said, I'm not going to prosecute. I'm not going to prosecute. And everybody involved on Mr. Cosby's side of the fence who are not stupid lawyers clearly thought they could rely on what you said. So while ordinarily it's got to be in writing and all the formalities, there are situations where fairness, equity requires that you enforce something. If it's foreseeable that someone's going to rely on what you say and it's reasonable for them to do so. And in this crazy situation, we think it was reasonable. You went way out of your way to do all this stuff. And and they, David, let me stop you there. So sure. let's get a little more granular on what that understanding was between Bill Cosby's attorneys and the the DA. Was there anything signed? Was no, there... there was not. There were oral communications between the DA's office and Mr. Cosby's criminal counsel, several of them, and there was a press conference that the DA gave where he said, I'm not going to prosecute. And he read a very lengthy statement. When the successor DA came in and said, I want to reopen this case and got you know these calls and this letter from the earlier DA, she said, okay, show me where it's written. And he sent her a copy of the script to the press conference. She's like, that's, that's the writing. This is a press conference. This is not an agreement, but that's what he had. And the other little talk about granularity, the Supreme Court didn't get into all the details of this, but said, This DA, he talked a lot, and not everything he said was consistent. He said several times on the record that he believed that he was, for all time, releasing Mr. Cosby from criminal prosecution by the state of Pennsylvania. At other times, he said other things. He talked about his conversations with Mr. Cosby's lawyers and characterized them as something different, as a grant of what's called transactional immunity, which means we can't use the deposition in this case, not for all cases. Which one was the ultimate deal? Hard to say. 
what the Supreme Court ultimately did was to say, look, tie goes to the runner. In this situation, if it's not clear, a defendant's going to get the benefit of the doubt. I would assume Bill Cosby had, you know, amazing lawyers, why they didn't insist on having this in writing at the time. Yeah, and that's an interesting question that the court, the cases don't really go through. In hindsight, it actually was a really good play to not have it in writing. If they had insisted on it being reduced to writing, two things would probably have happened. Number one, the deal might not have gotten done right. because the DA can't just pop off at a press conference. You have to circulate. I mean, there's a certain formality involved and people might have fussed about it. And someone with civil experience on staff might have said, uh, DA, they're probably going to ask him about other women in the deposition. <laughs> but he didn't seem to have really considered that. So there might not have been a deal. If there had been a deal, they would have used standard off-the-shelf form stuff. And that almost surely would have at least started as something just limited to Ms. Constant's case. Now, they could have added on to it. But if you just grab the off-the-shelf agreement, it's almost always transactional immunity, this case, because DAs don't know what's coming down the pike yet. They don't want to release everything. And it's that's why it's a little surprising this DA did that here. Even if you're not thinking about civil litigation, I mean, you never know what somebody's gotten into. I, I guess I got confused, David, between Constant's case and the immunity that Cosby had in not being prosecuted for that particular right. case. How is he protected in his right. deposition about his, with his admission of having done this to other women? Well, that's, that's the critical question about what was said by the DA and communicated by the DA is, did he make statements that it would have been reasonable to interpret as a grant of full immunity? In the legal parlance, transactional immunity means just for Ms. Constant's case. The other term of art is use immunity, which means you can't use it at all. That's obviously much better for the defendant or for the witness. Prosecutors are a lot more reluctant to give that up because there's always something else that comes up. So the conclusion that the Supreme Court reached was in all of these statements that the DA made had the effect of convincing Cosby's counsel that it was use immunity, that it was in exchange for, you're going to be given this deposition, and I'm never going to prosecute you ever about anything. And the DA used that language that strong in his testimony uh, in the trial court and his letters to the later DA. I'm not quoting it exactly right, but you can see it in the opinion. He said, that's what I meant to do, was forever free him from my office. Why did he do that? He went a lot farther than he needed to for this case. I think he was thinking it might take a while for the civil deposition to happen, or it you know, might go for several years into the future and there needed to be a strong guarantee that his office wasn't going to second guess that decision. But I just don't think he was really thinking about it. I think he just thought there's this one case and this is the beginning and the end of the universe. If it was, it might not have been a bad decision. Do, do you think it has to do a little bit too with the perception that Bill Cosby had at that time, that he was kind of, you know, America's dad and this is just sort of a frivolous, you know, lawsuit against him that somebody out to make money. Do you think public mm -hmm. opinion weighed into that at all? It would have been a factor in the in the, the deposition. I mean, there his lawyer in the civil depositions tried to get court orders against some of these questions and did not succeed. It's hard to do in a civil deposition setting. I think that, though, even the best civil lawyer is going to be thinking civil case. They're thinking about the case they're defending. And if they're thinking about another case, they're thinking about money damages. They're thinking about, OK, we're making some admissions here, but are we saying anything so crazy that we're just not going to be able to defend ourselves in court? 
if you're giving testimony that's not favorable, as long as you know what it is and you're containing the damage, that's sort of what civil lawyers think. And they don't tend to think about, is there going to be a criminal prosecution anyway? And if you have all this stuff in the air about immunity, well, you probably really don't think about it. You probably think you're okay. So I'm not going to say those guys were perfect on their review of what the situation was, but I can certainly see where they were thinking, we're defending one and maybe some more civil cases, but that's just today's work. That's just what you do. I don't think they saw this other threat really coming down the pike as serious as it turned out to be. So does this mean they can't prosecute him again or that the deposition can't be used? That was the last issue the Supreme Court looked at was it said, okay, look, there's a this was a big screw up. This shouldn't have been said this way. It resulted in this deposition being given. It should not have been given. and It shouldn't have been used as evidence. Now the question is, what do we do? Do we just say prosecution's over and done with, or do we send it back down and say you can't use the deposition? And they said, technically, the correct answer is probably send it back down. You can't use the deposition. But I mean, really, the case was built around the deposition. There's no point in trying to draw that distinction. It's just over. The, the prosecution, this deposition have gotten so interconnected with each other that it's one and the same. So they said, no more. It's done. Over. So could somebody else now independently come up, you know, with a separate case? And that's sure. If you're not, not included I mean, I, in the deposition and accuse him. If if they were named in this deposition. No, well, but if, if they're not if, in that deposition. If they're not in the deposition, maybe. And they probably, there are probably civil uh, remedies still out there, depending on limitations. A lot of these cases were a long time ago, and that was an issue in them at the time. Um, but criminal prosecution on anything connected to the deposition is going to be hard. A harder question, this is purely hypothetical, but what happens if somebody hears a familiar name in the deposition and that reminds them of something and then they go find a person who wasn't named in the deposition? Were they named? No. But did that case get going as a result of the testimony? Yes. And given the way the Supreme Court handled the issue, they'd probably be pretty reluctant to allow that case to go forward either. When, when was that Supreme Court uh, decision, David? Uh, a couple of months ago. It was in it was June 30th, 2021. So what took so, it, he was convicted, though, three years ago, sent to jail. Why did it take so long? Were this was this just appeal after appeal? That's, and that's, just, just... that's, that's a pretty normal time okay. frame from conviction through the intermediate court of appeals to the highest court of a state. That's about what it would be in Texas and about what I'd expect in a, in a big state like Pennsylvania that has a similar you know, load on its courts. OK, so this this happened immediately after he's convicted. It's like, guys, this is not you know, we, we, we appeal this right away and this, that yeah. just gets the engine going. And that's, that's right. You, the, the, it takes, you have to prepare the formal record of what happened in the trial court. Then you have to do these detailed briefs to the court of appeals. They have to hear the arguments. They have to think about it, write their opinion. That's a year and a half there, another year and a half in the Supreme Court. I'm just guessing, but that sounds about right. You know, the timing was in sync with what you'd expect. So Cosby is now 83. And for all practical purposes, I don't think he poses that much of a threat to the public. I guess the question is, given the statute of limitations on a lot of these accusations, what do you think the, re the reality of somebody coming forward with new allegations? Very slim. I, I think it would have to be a very unusual set of circumstances, and that would almost surely have come to light by now. It's not like anyone hasn't heard of this case. So I think 
the book is has been written on this. I don't think there's going to be more action coming up with new people raising new claims. It's just been too long, and the publicity has been so great. So he'll live out the rest of his days without any fear of any legal problems, basically, unless they're civil. Yes, I mean, I suppose he. I don't. I assume he's settled all the civil cases that have been filed over the years involving this. If it's still ongoing, he still has to deal with that. So he's free of the fear of criminal prosecution for this. On the other hand, he has the last years of his life to live, no longer being America's granddad. And, you know, whatever stature he once had in the public eye, it's long gone as a result of this record. So is that justice? Well, it's what happened with the justice system. Let me ask you this. How can this this particular perfect legal storm be avoided in the future? 99% 99% of cases, it is avoided because it's written down. It's a pretty standard negotiation between someone with knowledge and a prosecutor. There's sort of accepted language. Many jurisdictions have forms that they want you to use. I believe Pennsylvania, at least for part of it, has that. And had that been recorded in writing, there would have been a very clear record. Everybody would have known exactly where they stood, and there wouldn't have been this problem going forward. And, you know, in other cases, if it's not in writing, it usually is obvious that there wasn't a deal. It's like, yeah, I had a deal, but it wasn't in writing. Oh, really? And you go back and look at the record, and it just doesn't make sense, the story of how they think that they got immunity for something, and, and the circumstances just don't add up. So it's unusual. This case is very unusual in that regard. The problem they had here is the problem you have in almost every civil case about an oral contract which is that people remember different things. And whatever they wrote down at the time is not complete because they didn't run it by the other side to get them to sign off on it. So you go to the courthouse and it's a he said, she said about what's agreed to and the written record is inconclusive. And the civil courts are filled with that every day. People arguing about deals that they think they had or didn't have. That's unusual in the criminal court setting, but this is an example of that just sort of spilling over to that side. I think the, the big takeaway, I guess, is the high profile nature of this case clearly affected the DA's thinking. He was very concerned about justice for this for this constant in a way you might not be with a less high profile defendant on the other side. He was, I think, pretty clearly trying to do the right thing. Uh, he was a little dazzled by the spotlight with all these press conferences and things and high powered lawyers calling him up. And I think he just if he'd been just another day in the office handling a boring case, he would have just filled out the forms. It wouldn't have been a big deal. But here, he got a little starstruck, cut a few corners, things got a little complicated, and then a lot of time went by, and there you are. No one remembers what happened. So the big cases are hard, and they're hard because of the unique challenges that they pose, but they're also hard because you can forget the basic stuff. And that, in some ways, is just what happened here. People just forgot to dot their I's and cross their T's. It's unfortunate because a lot of the victims, you know, therefore felt like they didn't get justice or that, you know, his justice wasn't quite met because he no, was really early. That rests on the initial DA who just, he was trying to do the right thing for Ms. Constant. Good for him. That was a nice way of thinking through that situation. But really? You didn't think <laughs> there might be more people? Yeah, it seems kind really? of odd. He went with yeah, that type of just, predatory I, behavior. Thinking but it appears that it just else. genuinely didn't cross his mind. And he appeared genuinely surprised when his successor announced a decision to prosecute. So that's just the way he saw it. Well, David, thank you so much. This was incredibly informative. I think 
I, I can speak for myself. Oh, sorry. It's in writing. It's in writing. <laughs> I cut you off. <laughs> well, you were going on about awesomeness. I'll let you go, go back. <laughs> I'm not signing anything. Okay, <laughs> that's it. Okay, I am not signing. Yes, anything. we've I'll, learned I'll anything. anything. We've learned that. Yeah, but don't worry. I'll give a press conference and I'll make it all be. <laughs> Who does that? Oh my god! No, I'm really glad you cleared this up because I, it was very confusing. It was. It, no, a it, lot of people didn't really understand. I, I went through the opinion again, getting ready for our call here, and it's. It is hard to follow. It's 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 confusing what the DA did at the time because he did a lot of different things, not entirely consistent. Years go by. People are confused when they're looking through the records of the office, trying to understand what happens. The lawyers involved are confused about what the rules are they're operating under. And, you know, by the time it gets to the courts of appeals, it's years of half-baked records and half-recorded recollections. And it is, in fact, confusing, which is why the Supreme Court says this is really a one-off. You just don't get a situation like this every day. We're going to have to go back to some really, really basic principles about how the justice system operates to try to resolve this. You just can't apply the regular precedent to the situation. It's interesting that they weigh on the side of the defendant in in those kind of ambiguous situations. I find that interesting. Yeah, it's and it, it wouldn't necessarily always be the case. A more conventional, I mean, there are a lot of cases where people say, "Oh, I had immunity," and nah, you don't. I mean, <laughs> there's there is a certain level of formality that we expect, but you know, at the end of the day, the standard is beyond a reasonable doubt, and the standard for for pro the expectations of how prosecutors are supposed to conduct themselves is very high, and Against that background, those standards is how the court ended up looking at it. And the DA's work here just came short. Interesting. Well, fabulous. Thank you so much, David. This was super informative. And I'm I'm no longer confused about <laughs> why, why Cosby yes. is out of jail. Yeah, I will just comment. I found that some of the there's the stuff at the beginning of the DA giving press conferences and stuff. And then, then it gets into the facts of the cases. And ew. Ew. <laughs> Is that your professional opinion? I flipped through that part. Then I got <laughs> to the, back to the legal stuff again. Oh my God, it's awful. <laughs> you know, you're the, you're, you're, we're introducing you, you to our listeners as the Ivy League attorney. So. There you this go. is what they're you're presenting as, as you say, ew. Yeah, ew. exactly. Yes. Ew. Ew. Yeah. Nasty. Unfortunate. Well, thank you very thank much, you David. Thank you so much, yeah. David. Appreciate and we, we look forward to talking to you again about another piece. Murder, murder, murder.